Hi guys and welcome to RVA Durst Municipal Mania, Wednesdays 11 o'clock on WRIR 97.3 FM, Independent Radio. I'm Francesca Lee Davis and I've got Jesse Perry and Melissa Vaughn and this is the first of our Fun Drive shows for fall 2018 and we've got a really special guest with us today. Who's here with us, Fran? It's former council person Chuck Richardson. Say hello, Chuck. Hello. How are you doing, Richmond listeners? Oh, we're so excited to have you here with us today. Well, I'm excited about being here with three gorgeous women. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm Start old. us off with flattery. That works well. I'm yes. old, but I ain't dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, we're so happy to have you with us. We've covered you before, and we talk about you all the time because we personally love you. And... The last time that we covered you in depth, we were you were a part of our civics class. We talked about how I was part of the dirt and the political bad guys in Richmond, but it wasn't that bad. <laughs> I've been called much worse, I tell you. Indeed. Indeed. And that's what we're that's a part of why we're here today because we want you to be able to control your narrative and tell your stories and talk to us about it. So before we get into the depth of some of the things you're gonna share with us today, why don't you talk about your departure from council and, and what actually happened and the well, history behind the, that? Um the last time that I was um arrested, it, it, it was the final episode of my drug rehabilit uh, uh, relapse. Mm-hmm. But I had been arrested before and um I, you know, uh, heroin addiction was, uh, was the same as the opioid crisis we're having now. Uh, they treated me quite differently. Back then, they thought I should be thrown under the jail. They had no concepts of what drug addiction was. They uh, Many people did not understand what uh, I had to go through to actually uh, discontinue the use of illegal drugs. It's a hard fight. It's a tremendous battle, and my heart goes out to people today who are caught in that uh, struggle. And if you have anyone in your family, and most Americans do, if you have anyone who's always broke, who's always telling you lies, who's always uh, without the things they need, who's never clean, who's always going through some type of crisis, if someone like that's in your family, it's a tremendous struggle And what you need to do after everything else is tried is to go up to them, put your arms around them, give them a hug, and tell them you want them back the way they used to be. And don't ridicule, don't harass, don't hurt them because they're already going through enough. You should try something like a an intervention where all the people who love this person, whether it's your sister, your brother, your aunt, your cousin, your niece, your daughter, your son, any one of those people who might be a loved one, they need to be embraced by their family members and tell them how they are worth saving and approach them from a love and caring standpoint. And I know it sounds soft, But it's going to have to be tough love after that. You're going to have to follow up, and the things you have to do are not so tough. But our understanding of the actual phenomenon of addiction has changed over the years. They they wrote editorials. They did everything except throw me under the bus. Mm. They wrote ugly letters to the editor. Uh, The media was down on me, and... um, it was it was it was right it was quite different then than it is now and the police stayed on me they covered me 24/7 i mean they, back then the whole 
uh, the, the, the state police, the Henrico police, the Chesterfield police, and even the FBI. Uh, and there's another story I'll tell you about the <laughs> FBI after my first arrest. <laughs> but that story had to do with them trying to get information from me, which I ended up uh, bamboozling them out of $21,000 because they wanted information on corruption. But they only Damn. wanted on black politicians, and they thought I knew the black politicians mm. who were corrupt, corrupt. And I told them, aren't you supposed to... Uh, apprehend or pursue people on an equal basis. They said, well, we think you know more black people. That's uh. why would you assume that? I mean, I have as much white blood in me as I do black. Mm -hmm. For me to dislike white folk would be like disliking a part of myself. Huh. Biologically, you know, I don't know what percentage, but biologically, I'm pretty much mixed, and I am morally obligated to love all parts of myself. Mm -hmm. You know, so that means the whiteness, the blackness, the brownness, whatever color's in me, it would be an oxymoron trying not to love them because they represent a part of who I ha who I am. But anyway, uh, they wanted only black uh, politicians, and that really angered me. So I said, well, let's play ball, fellas. And uh, I ended up telling them stories that were close to the truth, <laughs> but straight the edge. <laughs> Got enough of their interest up. And poor people, some of the people, the FBI went in and ransacked their houses for information or evidence to back up my story. And, uh, you know, for an example, people would give me a campaign check for my campaign uh, uh, contribution, which is totally legal. But I kind of yeasted the story up and told them that I had done something for them. And, why, and they, when they found the check, they were like, oh, wow, we got something. That oh, story stars, up. Chuck. But it was a simple campaign <laughs> check. And it was, it was, it was meaningless. But the problem was they went into those people's houses and they up, up ransacked their basement, took all the, up, you know, it, it was just, I feel so bad for those people. But <laughs> they stuck by me and... Um, <laughs> anyway, it was quite different then than it is today, the treatment. And uh, I was one of the first persons, I think, who was actually an elected official in the 18th who was arrested for heroin because they all thought I was using cocaine because that was the that was the kind of drug of, of, of mm -hmm. the upper class and was more sophisticated and was unlike me to have been on heroin. But heroin was the drug in Vietnam that said if you're scared, if you're frightened, if you don't want to face death, how about uh, taking a snort of, of, of this heroin? And it, I, I don't want to describe to you all what the heroin did, but it certainly uh, made me and uh, many of the other Marines endure combat or the fear of combat. And um, the rest of it was history. Once I got a taste of that white horse, I didn't want to ride anything else mm. because it just alleviated every problem, emotional, psychological, spiritual, physical. It was the essence, uh, the ethereal heights of a feeling. Mm. And, you know, they said we have a feelings disease, mm -hmm. and it is. It was the essence of feeling uh, the euphoric uh, high of alleviating all problems, uh, having nothing, and and and, and unfortunately, uh, the consequences were actually fortunately the consequences were so overwhelming that no one could do for very long. And I think only 
the good Lord was with me to allow me to still be living today after what you go through almost 20 years of using it. It was uh, before I was able to, instead of uh, falling from grace, I think more or less I was rescued from hell. Uh, some people think you're in the arms of a beautiful woman when you're using drugs and enjoying that feeling, but you're actually on the grasp of a grizzly bear because it will squeeze the life out of you. Addiction is addiction is something that we don't really talk about a whole lot um, in Richmond, and I think the national now talk is very much so on the opiate crisis because we've got a different... Well, since it affects white people, it is yeah. the, the user country. We've got a different usership. Demographic of users. Right. Demographic right. of users. When yeah. I was using it, the perception was that only poor black people who were junkies and had no moral um, grounding and they were just people who were not worth saving and their lives were not valued very much. So very little um, attention was given to it. Yeah, kind of like they treat crack users now. Right. Right, yeah. Right. Well, anyway, the um, the uh, treatment was different. Now there's a, a better understanding. And now instead of calling the police and calling the vice squad when someone is uh, caught or when there's an overdose, they call a rescue squad. And the whole the, the, the phenomenon of addiction has brought out the racist aspect of our uh, what you would call institutional racism, where people are, are learned the activities of disregarding people on the basis of color. Mm-hmm. I mean, back when I was on city council, I had an on and off addiction, and I would I would try to stop, and I would go through my own cold turkey and own withdrawal, and. Um, it was it was very difficult, but while I was on council, I would attempt to get a financial assistance to drug treatment programs like Rubicon, and almost every year I would struggle to get uh, fifty to a hundred thousand dollars appropriated for drug treatment. Then, but it only affected black communities, so there was not much consideration given to it. But I had to right. fight, and even though four of my colleagues were black, even black people didn't have a full understanding of how people were not morally bankrupt or corrupt, but they had a, a sickness that was very, very hard to fight. That's an illness. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, of course, you've got to understand that there are consequences to it. But anyway, I had a rough time trying to get the votes on council, but every year I did manage to get the support for Rubicon and other drug treatment centers, uh, Jump Street and uh, various programs. And today... The same facilities like the Rubicon over in Highland Park that was actually uh, almost on life support. Very little funding was given to it. But once this uh, Oxycontin hmm. became a national, actually it's beyond an epidemic, it's a pandemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it just uh, affects people across the nation and beyond. But now that it does affect uh, the white community, the same facilities that we're about to go into uh, total absence of any attention given to it or any dollars given to it. Now they are re- appropriating dollars and rehabilitating mm-hmm. facilities and gladly giving money to those types of things. And I think it brings out how prejudiced and biased we even uh, subconsciously, and, and some people who are who would consider themselves decent, fair-minded human beings, black and white, are caught in the grips that, that institutionalize racist policies where we consciously or subconsciously actually 
have less consideration on the basis of color. Well, Chuck, we thank you for that. Let's let's talk about the monumental political career that you've led here in Richmond. Well, you're very kind to say that, but I don't know if it's... It was well, a pun intended in that because... Most no, it wasn't. Because that, I mean... Oh, I was hoping it was. I love a good pun. <laughs> I mean, to be 28, we were just talking previously before you came about how much of a, a shift there was in the demographic in Richmond at that time, in the leadership in Richmond in that time, and to be a 28-year-old councilman elected to the first majority black It was council. quite a ride, I have to admit. It was quite <laughs> a ride. You know, I tried not to be taken by the, the actual attention, the praise, and the, the hype glorification. It was a big thing at that time uh, to be on city council at such a young age and to be one of the first blacks to have a, a black mayor that was a historical moment mm-hmm. in Richmond's history. So it was all I could do was to keep my feet on the ground. <laughs> and I think the one thing that made a difference in my life at that time, and I can only look to the maker and appreciation, but I had actually come home with an attitude of having been used by my government, mm-hmm. and I was very resentful. I had, um, I was drafted into the Marine Corps. I was designated uh, 0331, which is the machine gun, an M60 machine gun, which fired 550 rounds a minute, which was a powerful weapon to be carrying in the jungles. Everybody respected the machine gun, the big black, pretty, beautiful. The sound of the gun itself mm-hmm. was horrendously frightening to the enemy, and you got a lot of respect. But after having done that, and after having gone through so many things that I can hardly think about, much less talk about it, uh, so many people were made to do things that were not in their character. And that's where the that's where the um, post-traumatic stress comes from, thinking of the things, not what happened to you or what people did to you under combat circumstances, but what you did to other people. You know, you suffer from that because even though I didn't realize at that time it was wrong, it's just a hard thing to deal with having done. Sometimes you become so guilt-ridden. But anyway, I was so angry when I returned home at the American system of government I was mad. I wanted to get back at people. I had an anti-authority feeling. So I was pretty much willing to do things in the name of being decent to people because of what my government had made me do to people. So I think in a certain strange or odd way, I was compensating for poor people. I mean, all the issues on council that represented disfranchisement of poor people, I was on their side. And it was because pretty much I was angry and not because I was better than anybody else, but I was just very angry and I did and said some things that were in defense of the people that I had fought. And I think in coming home from Vietnam with that attitude, I was forced to do by conscious some things that were different, that I had a, a bigger level of sympathy for people, and I was mad at my government for having done what I did. And so how did that lead you into your race for city council? Well, that's another quirk of experiences in my life, because I had worked at the Richmond Regional Planning District Commission for six years, and it was a governmental job. I worked to organize programs for Richmond and the six surrounding jurisdictions. So I became familiar with the members of the board, supervisors, and the uh, machinations of regional government. 
and familiar with all of the fundamentals of municipal operations. So when I left that job, not on favorable terms, <laughs> if you catch my drift, <laughs> they asked my father-in-law, Dr. Ford T. Johnson, who was a well-known dentist in Richmond, and he was on the Human Relations Commission at that time. And having a black in any position of authority in Richmond at that time was pretty phenomenal. I mean, you didn't have blacks in City Hall. You didn't have very few, very mm-hmm. few. I think uh, Ted Thornton was the only director at that time of Richmond Personnel Department. And I think we had a assistant black city manager. At that time, it was Mandy Deese. But we were just starting to get into interracial administrative positions at the City Hall. And that was uh, 1977, which by that time you would have thought that we had more blacks in positions of authority. But there were very few, very few. So they had asked my father-in-law to run. He he was a dentist, but he didn't want any parts of it. He said, I don't want the attention. He was pretty much a ladies' man, but he didn't want people (laughs) delving into his life. (laughs) Uh, But he was pretty popular in Richmond, and he said, they all called me Chucky at that time. He said, Chucky, look, you know more about government than I do. Why don't you run? I said, no, I can't run, Doc. And I went to this old man, P.S. Jones, and asked him to run. I said, I'll be your city manager. And he said, no, I got a better proposition. He said, and he flattered me with all the things I was. He talked about how articulate I was. He told me how knowledgeable I was. And he said things like, I say this at the sufferance of my modesty, <laughs> uh, how <laughs> handsome of a young man you were. And, you know, he told me all these things that you should run. And, and I said, okay, I'll run. And at that time, it didn't take much of an encouragement. At that time, I did all of my own work. I made up and designed my brochures. I was good in graphics and art. I was my own campaign manager and my own campaign treasurer. The one person that helped me the most was my wife. My wife, Phyllis, she stuck by me, and we pretty much ran my campaign. made raised the dollars, uh, and I don't think I raised over fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars for the whole for the whole campaign at that time. The strange part about that race was that the Richmond Crusade for Voters, which is being resurrected now, and I think uh, Bernice Travis, who's now the president, is doing a good job at bringing some life back into the organization. But when the Crusade for Voters, it had a very disciplined voting block. I mean, when people saw the Crusade's endorsement, they the black people went for the Crusade's endorsement without exception, almost. There were a few people being bought off, but it was mostly... <laughs> it, you know, some, some things never changed. Right. <laughs> but there were some people who didn't go along, but it was a solid voting block. And At that time, the Supreme Court had just passed a ruling that the city had to be redrawn into districts because it was an at-large system. And when Richmond got together with Chesterfield and said, look, if we don't get some more white voters, and they didn't call us colored or Negroes, but when they said it, they're going to take over, they got together and annexed 23 square miles from Chesterfield to get more white voters. When they did that, it violated the 1964 Voting Rights Act. 
and the judge ruled that we had to break the city up into nine districts so that people will not be elected from the far west end, which is all affluent, rich white people, and they had to have people elected from each section of the city. When that happened, that ruling passed down. The Richmond Crusade for Voters had found people to back in every district except the fifth, which is where I happen to strangely live in. And there were three blacks running, Dr. Randy Johnson, Earl Gray, who his daughter is now on city council, and myself. The three of us would have split the vote, and Frank Gilbert, who was running from the Teams of Progress, was almost sure to win, and whoever would win that fifth seat, the council at that time elected the mayor. That fifth seat would have been the fifth vote to vote for who was going to be the mayor. Mm-hmm. So at that time, the city was so polarized that the whole fight was on race. If the black fifth vote was secured and was elected, then Henry Marsh would have been the mayor. But if the white fifth yeah. district had Frank Gilbert won that seat, then we would have had a white mayor. When the crusade for voters was trying to decide between Randy and I, I'm sorry, Kim, but Earl was out to running. But when the crusade, <laughs> when the crusade for voters decided that they couldn't decide, they held a what to call a mock election in the fifth district only. They said we're going to have a campaign, we're going to have a forum, and we're going to have the people to vote in the fifth district at a town hall meeting, and whoever wins that, we will endorse. And at that time, we ran. And we had the mock, the, the election, the campaign forum, and I won. But even though I won that election, the Crusades, I think it was led by Henry Marsh, Henry had picked Randy Johnson, and he convinced the Crusade not to endorse me in spite of what they said. When they did that, it caused a greater split in the black community. And so as the election turned out, it became polarized, Norvell Robinson was the president, and he said blood was going to run in the streets of Richmond, and we wanted everybody black to vote for one black candidate, but they couldn't decide who it was. So I ended up winning by eight votes. Randy Johnson had 1,112 votes, and I had 1,120. So I won by eight votes and uh, subsequently took the council seat, and we had a black mayor. And that's how I got in office. And after that, I was so committed to city council that my work, I worked so hard every day for that city council and the citizens of the 5th District that my all of my other elections were landslides. Uh, I, I never had anyone, even though I had some very serious contenders, I never had anyone come close to, to my elections after that. You've said before that one of your greatest accomplishments on council has been getting the Arthur Ashe statue up. Yes. Could you tell us a little about the experience of trying to add Arthur Ashe to Monument Avenue? Oh my goodness! It was a people don't know it. I will try to cover that, but it was a, when I first suggested the idea, it actually came as a result of watching the Soviet Union uh, fall. And I was sitting on my back porch, and I overheard it on the television that the that the Soviet Union was splitting up. And and when I came inside and looked at it. I saw the statues being torn down, and, you know, there was desecration uh, of the statues, and there was violence, and it was ugly. And I thought about how remarkable it was that under democracy, we had gone through the Civil War and civil rights, and still 
We didn't tear down symbols and things, even when we should have. When I first suggested that since history should have been a portrayal of a city on a continuum where we didn't just have the Civil War in Richmond, so I suggested that we put up some civil rights leaders on Monument Avenue to go along with the Confederate soldiers to show that Richmond was not just as the Civil War, but it was more, and let's let the statues of the monuments reflect that reality. Tell that story. Yeah. Right. Well, when I did that, everybody thought I was out of my mind. Most people, to make it simple, called me a, a crazy N-word. Not you know, that's, Blacks and whites. And so at that time, I had not decided who I was going to honor on Monument Avenue. I think Doug Wilder came out, and he was supported. And the one person, Henry Marsh, he and Walter Kinney, they were not in favor of it, and I never understood why, but they never told me. But at any rate, Arthur Ashe passed right at that time, and there was a confluence of events that somehow it appears as though God's hand was at work. Hmm. Whatever power they may have been was at work because he died in the midst of the debate as to who was going to be put on Monument Avenue because people didn't take me seriously. Some of them thought the issue was not even going to uh, come to fruition. So when Arthur died, and I suggested that Arthur be the statue put on Monument Avenue, it made it much harder for people to argue against a decent, fair man like <laughs> Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> You are in the process of listening to a very special Fun Drive episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. That's right, I said Fun Drive. It's WRIR's 2018 Fall Fun Drive, and we're so happy to be able to be here putting on this show for you, and we wouldn't be able to do it without listener support. So if you can give, give what you can. We will even take that linty penny out of the bottom of your pocket. Anything is great. Now back to the show. At that time, I was threatening to take down, quietly, to take down the Jefferson Davis statue. And the businessman in the Richmond Renaissance said, Richardson, you can't do anything like that. I said, but he is a white supremacist. They said, yeah, but you better not say that because we're going to have more racial problems in Richmond than you can ever imagine. So they said, and they wouldn't meet with me in, in publicly. It was behind closed doors. It was quietly, and they wouldn't talk to any other council members because none of them would even touch it. Mm -hmm. So I met quietly with them, and and they said, I struck a deal, like making a deal with the devil. And it was about eight of them, white businessmen. And I said, look, I won't mention the Jefferson Davis statue's removal if you would go along with the Arthur Ashe statue. And none of them uh, uh, was happy about it, but they would rather me not talk about taking down the Jefferson Davis statue and would much prefer having me putting up another statue. It's much easier to tear down than it is to put up. So I went on and said, let's, unless what you're tearing down is something like up there today. That's good. That's progress. That's not tearing down. That's building up when you tear those down. But <laughs> anyway, when, when they agreed to quietly be quiet, it gave a lot of impetus to the Arthur Ashe statue. And as it turned out, 
I have to give Viola Baskerville her due credit. She was the one person that stuck by me in that fight. And when I called Doug Wilder one morning, I said, Doug, I need you to say something. Your voice has substantial influence, and I need you to say something in this fight. He said, well, Chuck, I've said my part, and I'm done. Arthur would not have wanted this type of rancor and bitterness. And I remember the words just as clear if it was last yesterday morning. Arthur would not have wanted this type of rancor and bitterness. And I said, Doug, Arthur went to South Africa and spoke against apartheid alone. He didn't have soldiers. He didn't have colonels and generals behind him. Arthur would have agreed with the principles of equal justice for black people. Doug said, I've said my part, and that was it. But there were very few people who really went along with that. But it passed. The council passed the planning commission, and it was approved to put Arthur's statue up. I was incarcerated shortly after that because, boy, you talk about 24-hour surveillance. <laughs> when I started talking about putting up a statue on Monument <clears throat> Avenue, it increased the surveillance. And at that time, I was still clean, but... They sent people out to try to get me to relapse, and I was in—I was clean at that time. I mean, I had gone through drug treatment, and I was not using. And I figured, and this, this was the one thing that I really feel poorly about, how political the police were, how when I started talking about putting up the Arthur Ashe statue, how the police surveillance was increased. And sadly, when you're in a struggle to save your life from drug addiction, it's a hard enough struggle or battle to go alone. But when you've got an entire police department trying to cause you to relapse, when their task is to reduce illicit drug use and the actual people who perpetuate that activity, and the police department was actually trying to entice me openly to go use. I mean, oh. I was going to meetings. I was going to uh, AA and NA meetings. Uh, in my 12-step program, and the police were in the AA meetings. Mm. Can you believe that? And people would tell me, well, Mr. Richardson, you are attracting <clears throat> police to our meetings. I said, well, I can't help what they do. That was how bad our police department was treating one drug addict who was in recovery. And they found somebody who I had been close friends with and gave him money. And uh, after inviting me over... They set me up for uh, for drug distribution when actually I was just a struggling addict. And, you know, it's up to people to, to believe what they want to believe. In my heart, God and I know what I'm saying is true, but some people will always want to believe that I was just a bad, immoral, no good person without character. And once you decide to believe that, it's hard to get people to believe the truth or anything else. And it's so easy to believe what you want to believe from the outset. So it's kind of like Donald Trump today. Those people who believe in what Donald Trump is doing, no matter what you say, they're going to believe it. It's just that bad of a situation. We talk a lot about how things change, but things don't always change in Richmond. So looking at things now and based on your experience, what do you feel is holding Richmond back from progress, if anything, at this point? The like, what old, else needs to change? The old ideas. I mean, the statue should have been gone long ago. Other other teams, other cities, like Charlotte, for an example, that used to be five steps behind Richmond. But Charlotte's going out there focusing on a national football team, and we are still praising old statues. 
We should have been had a national football team in the Richmond metropolitan area. But our historic mindset is caught up in a history that was a cause. It was wrong. It was the darkest period of this state's history, this country's history. When you talk about embracing an institution like slavery, where things happen, and and you know, in that in that fight, once people see the truth in this issue, they themselves will take those statues down. And I think we will only won a half victory if we have to force people who praise those statues the evil in their deed. Unless they come to see that you cannot stand on a platform and praise men as part of your heritage and be proud of them when slavery entailed the deeds of men who, because they could and because they owned property, could take that property, 11, 12, 13-year-old girls, and pull them from their virgin slumbers and pleasure themselves because they owned that body. You cannot praise people who would derange the institution of families. You cannot praise an institution where men would force other men to work and not compensate them a dime, where families for 252 years had nothing to look forward to every day but long rolls of cotton, a 100-degree heat, and the rawhide swip of a slave overseer. You can't praise a life that was based on the selling and buying of another human's flesh. That is not an honorable lifestyle. And yet, without slavery, the South would not have had its heritage. It would have been impossible to survive. So when they say we are proud of our heritage, they need to think about what they are proud of. Can you really say you are proud that your great-great-great-grandfather was a rapist, dealt in the sale of flesh, deranged the, the institution of families, made men work, sent their sons to rich colleges, and if the slave mother was caught educating her son, they would be beat, whipped, and sometimes drawn and quartered. The whole issue of the statues will be resolved through education and truth. And the more people learn about what slavery and the heritage of the South really entail, they will come to understand that, that the statues should be taken down themselves, that we should not be depending on black people to take those statues down. Our consciousness should dictate to us a fullness where the truth will let us free, and we will take those statues down ourselves voluntarily because we are a righteous and moral people. And if we fail to do it in any other way, we will only have achieved a half measure of justice. I went to school with uh, Johnny Ash, who was Arthur's brother. We went to B.A. Graves together. And Johnny, <laughs> strangely, Johnny uh, and Arthur, they were kind of divided when uh, Arthur left Richmond and went to UCLA, and we always used to ask Johnny about Arthur, but and he was kind of overshadowed. But they loved each other, and they were good brothers, and I knew that. So, when they were trying to get the statue from being put on Monument Avenue, they actually had convinced Johnny and Jeannie, who was Arthur's wife, they had convinced them 
to support a project down on Broad Street, to name it after Arthur. But that was not why they really wanted to build that. They wanted to build it to prevent Arthur from being on Monument Avenue. And a group of conservative men got together and said they would finance something downtown to keep us from putting it on Monument Avenue. And and Johnny and, and Jeannie... Arthur's wife said they had initially supported. And I called Johnny and Johnny told me, he said, Chuck, I'm not necessarily in favor of it being on Monument Avenue. I just don't want them to tell us we can't have it on Monument Avenue. And I told Johnny, I said, Johnny, this is nothing but a trick. They don't want it on Monument Avenue and they're trying to use subterfuge to prevent you from supporting it being on Monument because they don't want him on Monument Avenue. And I think uh, Johnny did change his mind and they said we want him on Monument Avenue. I said it's the best street in Richmond, it's the finest street. Why wouldn't Arthur be suitable to be placed on Monument Avenue? And there was no answer to that question. I remember Bill Golding making a comparison. He was a member of council too. He was from the 9th District. And Bill Golding said, Arthur Ashe statue on Monument Avenue would be inappropriate. It would be like putting a toilet stool in the living room. Oh, pardon me? That was his comparison. And the thing was, this issue had nothing to do with him and tennis. It had nothing to do with him being on in Bird Park because that was Boulevard or in over on the Ash Center. It had nothing to do with thematic continuity where he was placed somewhere because he played tennis. The issue was about justice. Does a person who is black and considered our hero deserve to be on the finest street in Richmond? That was the issue that was a much higher cause than tennis or sports or anything else he did in his life. He fought apartheid. He was a man of justice, and there was inexcusable cause to fight this defenseless argument that he wasn't worthy of being on Monument Avenue for what reasons nobody came up with. And when the man came down from Danville and said, Mr. Richardson, uh, why don't you come to Danfield and present your argument to us and you'll see how we feel. I said, no, ho, 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 buddy, I'm going to stay right here in Richmond. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, we don't want him on Monument Avenue because Arthur is just different. And I got the whole council to shut up and pause and I asked him, what is Arthur's difference? And the man was actually flabbergasted in public, standing there at the speaker. He did not know what to say. He could not respond. He expected me to continue to talk, but I stopped and waited. Blam! And there was a pregnant pause by the whole city council chambers. And he was standing there, and he could not give a difference right there in public. Hmm. So everybody knew that he had been played by himself. And that's where a case where silence can be more powerful than all the words I could have spoken that night by not saying anything and, and waiting for him to give a no answer. People got the point. It was quiet. It was diplomatic. It was poignant. But it was heard. You um, actually came out to the march for Marcus David Peters, the march for justice and reformation. I think, yes. you know, what, what caused you to come out to the march yesterday? I think that police... Uh, uh, brutality, the lack of consideration for uh, black lives has not diminished any. And 
the the one thing that needs to be recognized is every significant individual who had a role to play in, in Marcus's death was elected. And I left the Crusade for Voters rally to get votes to go down there and pass the words. Crusade for Voters was holding a rally for voter registration, and I left there to spread the word about the rally because voting with every individual who had a significant role in the death of Marcus Peters was elected. The chief of police is appointed by the mayor and council. The mayor and council is elected. The Commonwealth attorney is elected. His vote, he has gotten into office by vote. All of the people, the judge are appointed, but they're appointed by people who are elected. And when you find that the fundamental solution is the vote, you urge people like the Crusade for Voters did to come out. Your one vote makes the difference because it is the power of that vote. Not just the rally, but after the rally, go out and register and vote because when you vote, that's speaking to power. And all those people who have a decision to make, if they knew that you wanted them to do something about the death of Marcus Peters, and if they didn't, they would feel it through the polls at mm-hmm. the voting booths, they would give different consideration to their decisions. And the council would not stand silent. And the mayor and the, the chief administrative officer and the chief of police, Alfred Durham, if he knew that people wanted him to get off of his duff and do something about it. I was trained in the Marine Corps to subdue another human being in six seconds. And when you tell me you did everything you could to, 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 to safely apprehend this man, a naked man without a stick or a gun or nothing, if you tell me you did everything you could and you didn't try to physically hand-to-hand combat, you didn't do everything. And I think it's an abomination that the chief would say such things out of his mouth. He is condemning his own police officer by saying, we don't have policemen that are knowledgeable and capable enough to subdue an unarmed naked man. That is inexcusable, and it should not be accepted. And Mr. Durham, you should be ashamed of yourself. Well, before we close out, I have one more question for you, Chuck. What words of advice do you have for our current council on what they can do to move this city forward? I think the the, the strongest thing or piece of advice I could give to council members would be to understand, first of all, what elected to public office is. Election to public office is a privilege and an honor, and you're elected to serve. Too many people become elected, and they expect others to serve them. They think that they are supposed to be treated differently, and it, 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 it changes people who have no grounding. If you don't know who you are or what your purpose in life, you seek empty attention and empty values that are self-serving. And when people start to become televised and see their name in print and have letters coming to their house addressed to the honorable, that level of attention starts to affect people who don't know who they are and their real purpose. And that high elected atmosphere has a certain type of effect on people. They start to believe that they are more than what they are. And my advice to them would be to understand that your position is to serve and not to be served. And I think too many people 
are self-consumed and they think of the position in their next elective office and they don't realize it. They do not understand that they should think of those people whose plate is empty and theirs is so full they're looking for more. And it's somewhat like an addiction. <laughs> Once you start getting it and you, and you get you enjoy that feeling, you want more. And in Richmond today, I think the council members think more of themselves. And it's reflected in the behavior, running for a different office, doing things for self-aggrandizement, trying to get more power, more attention, moving from one position to another and moving on up that ladder of political advancement. And I'm not going to say that they should think more, do this or do that. I'm just going to recommend the fundamental consideration of thinking of the people who elect them more and they think of their own personal aspirations of power and advancement. And we don't have many people who actually refuse the uh, political expediency. Right now, most council members understand the moral question of whether or not the statutes are right or wrong. And yet, if their district says, we want those statutes to stay up, people who fully recognize that they should come down will vote for the political expediency of remaining in office and doing what uh, uh, they know is wrong just to get reelected than to stand up and speak truth to power. I was just telling them, consider, see, the shepherds changed, but the flock remained the same. And people need to understand that one point, that the leaders always want more and worrying about what other people think of them. And you know, the last piece of advice is that we wouldn't think half as much about what other people thought about us if we realized how seldom they did. Huh. Well, that's a great place to close. It speaks to everything we've been talking about. Flashback to last week. People need to remember there's a time to vote. Don't Hashtag just sit voting. there. That's right. And if you haven't registered, understand that that is the way you do something about the, the problems you're having. You vote people in who care and not those who are running for office and getting elected to serve their own needs of attention, power, and greed. That's why I'm still broke. That's why I'm still <laughs> held only one position. <laughs> And only one position to the whole 18 years on council and didn't try to go anywhere else. I just tried to do the best job I could as a councilman. And I think that's the problem with some of the other uh, elected officials today. They just want to move on and don't care about the people. You need to be more concerned about people. That's all. I ain't going to say nothing. We thank you, Chuck. Thank we you so thank much. Thank you so much for coming. And this will not be the last time. Expect to be called up again. Yes, we'll see you soon, and we'll close out. Well, thank you for this invitation. I uh, I enjoy listening to you all, and I wish you had a national TV program that gave the news <laughs> and covers the event like you all. We need more strong, fearless women to stand up and bring their men out of the house and get off their duffs and say, let's make things right, because women have a lot of power. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with that. There's no lie there. We cert most certainly won't. Again, we thank you for coming on with us today. We hope to see you again. Thank you. Thank if you just call me, I'll be right here. Fine as y'all are. All right. <laughs> yes, there sir. we go. Thank you. Hashtag RPS is still not fully funded. Flint still has dirty water, and Richmond is still racist. We'll see y'all next week.
thank you for listening to our very special 2018 fall fun drive show of REA Dirt's Municipal Mania heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio volunteer fueled and listener funded we hope you come away from this interview with a better understanding of former Richmond City Council member Chuck Richardson the man the myth the legend we were so honored to have him come in and speak to us and we hope to have him back again real soon if you want to talk to us more about this episode or any other municipal government topic hit us up across all social media at RVA Dirt until next time Richmond stay classy and stay involved